Hey, this is Hallie Thompson, and I am back with you again for Blazers and Flag Pins, Episode 9. I'm excited to have Katie Geppert with me today, and I'm going to give her just a second to talk about a little on her background and the district she's running in. Hi, everybody. My name is Katie Geppert, and I am running for the 3rd Congressional District in the state of Missouri. That is, it's a pretty large district. Uh, it encompasses either all or part of St. Charles County, Lincoln County, Warren County, Montgomery, Callaway, Cole, Camden, Miller, Mary's, Gasconade, Osage, Franklin, and Jefferson counties in That's Missouri. That's impressive. That list. <laughs> it's, it's a very large district because there's there are parts of it that are very suburban. There are parts of it that are kind of exurban, and then there's a lot of it that's very rural. And so I, I kind of make a joke that uh, Kathy Ellis, who's running in District 8 in Missouri, she and I are having a competition to see how many miles we can put on our car as we travel around our districts, because she has a very large district as well. I'm curious, how many miles have you put on your car? Approximately 20,000 since I started campaigning back in, Ooh. I would say, officially I started campaigning, I wanna say middle of December, when I did my first event with the Jefferson City Indivisible Group. That is amazing. That is more miles than I have put on my car. Well, the reason I know that is because every 5,000 miles, my car tells me I need an oil change, so, and I've had to get about four different oil changes since I've started campaigning. Oh so. so what inspired you to run? Why did you throw your hat in the ring back in December? Well, I, there were there's a lot of different things out there that have made me want to run. But I think just in general, overall, knowing that I the, the country is kind of moving in a direction where I think a lot of us are very worried that if we don't stand up and actually do something to... Uh, to make sure that there are the progressive values that a lot of us have um, and a lot of the progress that we feel was made during the Obama administration, a lot of that is going to go away. And I think seeing um, what happened in the election, both at the local, state, and federal level, where uh, there's a lot of Republicans who are running or who ran and now are in charge, and they're trying to take away a lot of or make make changes back to where we were in terms of uh, financial stability for the, the lower middle class and, and people who are impoverished. Um, seeing a lot of those, a lot of the, seeing us go back to a lot of the, uh, I'm not sure how to say it correctly, the way things were before we made some positive changes for a lot of people. Right knowing that they want to go back to the way things were before, um, that just, that makes me worried, especially when it comes to healthcare. Healthcare is one of the biggest issues that I'm running on um, because I, while there are flaws in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare or whatever it is you want to call it, uh, the biggest thing is that when that passed, so many more people had access to healthcare because either they had a barrier due to cost or they had a barrier due to being denied because of a pre-existing condition. And as someone who has a pre-existing condition, um, I, uh, I'm a cancer survivor. Um, if I did not have a nice full-time job with a, a large company that had good benefits that are basically guaranteed no matter what, 
I would have a very hard time probably finding affordable health insurance. So it's, it's issues like that that really made me um, decide to run. And uh, I'm very excited, uh, very excited to be here uh, in the race. So it's your experiences in healthcare and as a scientist kind of coming together and saying, I've been disadvantaged in the healthcare areas or would be if my timing were off. Correct. And then with science in much the same way, if you were just a little bit younger or at a different time coming into your career, the effects of what's happening at the federal level would have really, really impacted you potentially. I, I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to dig in a little bit more about, about your history here. Okay. So I'm curious, you know, what were your experiences in working in science, you know, in your professional career and how does that, you know, skill wise feed into your every day on the campaign trail? Yeah. So. <clears throat> Uh, my background is in chemistry. I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in chemistry. And the first couple of years out of college as a, um, as a student with, a, with just a bachelor's degree, I kind of bounced around to uh, through some contract work and never really had a nice full-time job with stable benefits uh, until I, I did get some experience right out of school. Um, and, and then about two or three years after I had graduated from, from college, I was able to find a nice, steady, full-time job. Mm -hmm. And th for the three years or so that I worked the, um, with the contract temporary jobs, it, it was kind of okay that I had, um, uh, that they were just contract positions. They weren't full-time positions with benefits or vacation or anything like that because it was helpful to build those skills that I needed um, of actually just being out in the workforce and not just being in kind of the nice soft cocoon shell that college can be sometimes, you know, and, uh, well, unless you're, you know, a PhD student and then that's really hard, but don't but, get me started. Yeah. <laughs> no, as an undergrad, I think, you know, they, they treat you differently than you are in high, than you, they do in high school, but yeah. to some degree it's not the same as being in the real world and having a job. So, you know, having the having the ability to have the um, uh, to gain experience where you're just a contract worker you're not a full-time employee uh, that, that that is valuable in gaining um, skills that I didn't get when I was in in college you know because they don't they train you on a lot of theory but there's not a whole lot of hands-on practice that you get when um, when you're in school so being able to kind of cultivate more of the technical skills and and even kind of just learning how to navigate what it is to be a, an adult in a job yeah that, that was valuable but um, as I've gone um, forward in my career uh, knowing that you can be a full-time employee and have uh, really good health care benefits vacation um, and have access to like 401k or a pension or anything like that 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 has really um, also driven me in terms of uh, running for office when it comes to making sure people have access to good jobs and um, because uh, so I was working um, for a nice large company in the St. Louis area for about nine years and then I was laid off and uh, it, it was there was a headcount reduction so it wasn't like it was anything uh, I, I it wasn't anything I did although that may have been easier to swallow, you know, if it was my own fault for getting fired, but... Right, they said it's not personal, but I'm sure it felt Oh, yes, personal. it does, because you, when you're, when you're working, and I know most, uh, most scientists feel this way, too, when you're passionate about a project, you're putting your entire self into that project, 
you're not just working eight hours a day. Sometimes you're, you're taking that work home with you, whether you're actually doing work at home or actually, uh, or just sitting there uh, while you're eating dinner, thinking about what the next experiment is that you have to do. So going back to, you know, being on hunting for a job and trying to find uh, an employer that will employ you full time right off the bat, as opposed to being um, a contract employee was, was difficult to find. And, and I eventually, when I did find um, the, that first job after I had been laid off, it had been about seven or eight months. It took me that long to actually find something. And what was, what was so disheartening was that it's, it's hourly pay and it wasn't a bad hourly wage, but you still have to, you're kind of at the mercy when it comes to hours. So if they say, you know, you can go ahead and take a half day or where there's not anything really happening here, it's, you, you lose that pay because you don't automatically have that salary. Or if they're taking like a lot of, a lot of larger companies decide to take the last week of the year off. And that's a paid vacation for their full-time employees, but that's not paid yeah. for, for me. Or, you know, if you've got Memorial Day coming up, that's that's part of the work week that you're not, that it's a whole day of pay that you're losing. So um, being able to find a nice full-time job where you get paid holidays and you get paid vacation and you get that, um, where, I mean, you're still paying for your, your benefits, but you get a reduced cost on your benefits. Um, knowing that those really good full-time jobs are kind of few and far between unless you're very lucky and you find one or someone is someone who works for that company knows you specifically and says hey take a look at this person uh, and kind of gets you up to the front of the line with HR right it's it's really difficult so um, so when when I think a lot about what I want to do when it comes to um, reforming a lot of labor laws in this country, one of those does have to do with uh, contract jobs and and making sure that either the the contract uh, company who is employing that person and actually paying their salary, is, or the place where they're actually working, like one of those places has to take responsibility for that employee. And at the moment, ne most of the time neither of them are doing that yeah it's like a loophole there's somewhere in between where it, they are it is it yeah. is and and that can uh and i understand why there are a lot of work there are a lot of employers who only want to hire someone for six months like maybe that's that's the duration of the job and that's fine but at, at some point you have to say to yourself okay who's going to take responsibility for this person not just financially and paying salary or benefits but in who do you talk to about sexual harassment or um or some type of discrimination that's happening. There are, it's, it's very vague as to who you can go to in those types of situations. So, um, so yes, yeah, so those are just a couple of the uh, issues when it comes to updating labor laws in this country that I'd really like to address um, when I get to Washington. There's so much embedded in that and in your story. And I wanna, there's so many things I wanna underscore about it. Yeah. Uh, we have to talk more later, okay, definitely we about will. those. Uh, but maybe but we can the, have a part two podcast. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And we can talk more about labor. I, I do want to focus a little bit on, you know, it's not just in these scientific fields. And in fact, it might even be better in some of these areas um, within science. But this is all across, you know, the landscape right now in the United States is we're going more and more toward these piecemeal part time or 
short-term jobs. Yeah. And this is a huge challenge because oftentimes much of, much of the issues associated with this are hidden. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to underscore is you mentioned ACA and you mentioned your seven-month search yeah. just after undergrad. And that is the one thing that ACA, with the 26 cutoff for being on your family's insurance, did really help out with is that gap right there. Yes, and and I was fortunate enough. Um, my my mom uh, at the time uh, was a teacher, and she's a retired teacher. Mm-hmm. And because she was a member of Missouri NEA, um, that particular union, she was part of their union contract was that they are able to keep their children on their health insurance until they were 26. So. I I talked with my mom about you know trying to find a job and doing all this other stuff and she was like you don't have to worry about it. like like just tell me if you need me to add you to my my insurance and I said okay I'll do that so um, so it makes I was your job search easier it, it does it really relax. does yes yes and I've been very fortunate that um, I've had supportive parents supportive boyfriend slash husband um, most of this time uh after i mean also you know during my entire childhood but also after graduating college that i've had a lot of support because uh and i that's another reason i'm actually able to run is that i uh i've been able to get far in my career where i'm comfortable but also uh, so i'm at a point in my career where i do have some time to dedicate to uh to campaigning and um but just in in general I know that there are a lot of people who over the course of their lives just may not have, they're, they're going to go through times where they don't have family support mm-hmm. uh, or, or a friend's support system that can help them uh, accomplish their goals. Um, but I'm, I'm very fortunate that I've had that through my parents and, um, and my husband. Yeah. And I actually, that was the second thing I wanted to dig into. So that was a perfect transition. Uh, but in my, in my first episode, and then again, Um, and talks with a couple of different candidates in the area is we talked a lot about the intersection of your personal experiences and maybe personal privilege with campaigning and running for office. I mean, there are so many things embedded in a campaign, especially in a congressional campaign. You know, you have these contacts from your undergraduate or, you know, from, from your job that enable you to get to a certain place in your campaign. So I'm just curious a little bit about, you know, how you see that intersection and how you see, especially as a woman and as a scientist who hasn't been in the political arena for a ton of time, how do you see that playing out for you, maybe as a disadvantage or as an advantage? Um, well, I, it, it's both, it, it depends, it's very situational, it really depends on what the situation I feel the same is. Way. <laughs> yes, so I, I feel like, especially um, with you know, the Me Too movement and the Women's March and um, with certain causes like Moms Demand Action for, you know, Gun Sense, there's such a big push for women to run for office so that when I do go and do the outreach in the communities there and um, and just general, in general, if someone asks me what I do for a living or and I always mention I'm also a candidate for Congress. You know, I get a lot of positive feedback from that because so many people, I, I think, want to see more women run for office because, you know, we're what 51% of the population mm-hmm. and 25% of the legislature. So we, I, I think, so many people, and, and it's not just women who who I get that positive feedback from. It's men Absolutely. as well. Um, I, I was at an event last week where. 
uh, a gentleman walked up to me and just saw my name tag and saw that I was running. I hadn't even, I barely stepped in the door and he was like, oh, I'm so glad to see a woman running for office. I don't think he even knew what I was running for. But uh, he said, women are going to be what's going to affect positive change for us. And, and he's like, and he's like, not to sound old fashioned, but women are the people who run the households and they're, they're the ones who, uh, who, who are organized and get things done. And, uh, and he's like, I'm just so happy to see that there's a woman running for Congress. And, and I was like, awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And, and so he, uh, so like I said, it's not just women who are being very supportive about it. It's, it's the, it's it's men in certain areas, but then uh, there are disadvantages to uh, being a woman running for office because we're, and especially as someone who's a scientist and you want to make sure you have all the facts and all the data, you want to be really prepared when you go in. And sometimes guys just aren't like that. I mean, I mean, I know a number of, of male candidates who are very organized and are on top of things. And, and so that's, this is not necessarily a male, female type of uh, parody, but, um, but for I know for women especially we want it's so important that we look organized and put together when we go and do anything, and so that that's one of the disadvantages I think we have as as or I have as a woman because you know I I, I do feel that pressure to um, to look very well put together. Mm-hmm. So do you find yourself spending a lot of time doing that prep work and reading and thinking about? Uh, how you're going to look when you're at an event, whether that be, you know, intellectually or like physically. Yes. I, and, and there, there have been times in the campaign where I, I, um, I have felt like I've laid an egg, you know, when I've gone to an event and I haven't quite done very well because, uh, I didn't prepare as well as I needed to. Um, I thought, Oh, I've, I've said this speech a number of times. I don't have to necessarily practice it another time. And, and then you get in, or I, I've gotten into the, where I was either running late or just didn't have the time where I could just focus and get in the right mindset. So I've, all, I've, I've made a, uh, at a point where if I know I'm going to be somewhere and I have to actually give a talk to, um, uh, to a group of people, I have to give myself at least five minutes ahead of time where I can focus, get in the moment, and get ready to talk. Because after that one particular experience, I was like, I'm never, I'm never going walking into a room unprepared again. Yep. Yep. I feel that. Yeah. And I, I think that's a bit, I mean, I'm a scientist too, so I'm probably biased here, but that's my feeling as well. When I walk in unprepared, I'm okay off the cuff. And I might do fine, but yeah. I don't feel good about it yes. afterward. And I feel like that feeling stays with me for enough hours that if I have another event or if I need to go somewhere and get something done, I'll still be reflecting on it in a really negative way. <sighs> well, that's that's where the experience as a scientist, where you're getting, um, where, at least in my experience, where I've had a lot of senior scientists stand up uh, like after giving a presentation on a project that I have just completed and they're sitting there picking it apart <laughs> where I think that has that will come in handy that experience of someone just throwing out questions that maybe you had never thought about yes and being able to think quickly on your feet in order to um, either answer that question or be humble enough to say you know I don't know but I will try to find out absolutely or saying you know what that's actually a really good uh, 
topic to follow up on for this project. Thank you. And I like to turn it on people sometimes. I like to say, that's a wonderful question. Did you have any thoughts on how to approach that? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that can be deployed very strategically. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, and I've, I've had to do that, not just in my science life, but also in the, in the political sense sometimes, especially sometimes when, when uh, people who are asking questions start to get a little snarky. <laughs> Or, or they ask a question in a tone that is seems very uh, either negative or they're trying to catch you in a lie or something and it's just like oh well what do you think about that yeah, yeah. do you have any suggestions and it's always great to get input yes. on those kind of things you know I'm always happy to hear what they have to say so I love that approach well and so I, I think we I was telling you that we we went to a uh, before this podcast we were at um, an event in Warren County discussing uh, the, the state of hunger and the farm bill. And it was one of those events where I was not scheduled to talk, but in those types of events, I'm happy to be there and to listen and to find out and educate myself about what those issues are. And, um, and so that's where, again, as being someone with a science background, having those facts and knowing how to um, look for the root cause failures of certain issues and then going back and looking at the statistics of what's actually happening. Um, it's those types of situations where it's just so nice to be able to get suggestions from other people uh, who are either in the, uh, the, like the nonprofit world who are living that and doing all sorts of different um, uh, they're the ones out, I, I call the, I, I call myself a civilian in that regard as, as not a soldier. Um, the, 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 the women for, I believe it was Empower Missouri, they're the ones and, uh, or, and also Agape Food Pantry mm-hmm. uh, and Outreach in, um, in Warrington. Uh, they're the ones who are dealing with the people who need the social services every day. And those are the people who I really like to reach out to to find out, okay, these are, this is the information that you're gathering. You've been good enough to put it in a report form so that I can read it. Where do you think we need to go with this? What what do you because you're seeing the problems that, that these people face every single day? What are your suggestions? Because I mean I can come up with solutions, but th- they're the ones that'll know what solutions might actually work. Right, and if you can take their ideas on the ground there, that local knowledge, mm-hmm. and you can feed those into your solutions, having seen a lot of that local knowledge across your district. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the dream, right? Yes. To have all of that knowledge together. Absolutely. That's amazing. And it's so hard to collect. It's so hard to get into those spaces strategically. Yes. And the communication of that, I mean, that's been one of the biggest challenges for me is figuring out when are these meetings? Where are the meetings? Is it appropriate for me to be there? What's my role when I'm there? Mm-hmm. So, have you had some of those sort of navigations yourself? But that's been, yeah, that's that's been kind of uh, a learning process along the campaigning, along the campaign trail. Is that I look at, uh, I'll look at like, oh, there's this meeting. Let me reach out to whoever the organizer is and say, I'm so and so, and I'm running for this office, and um, I want to attend this meeting. Um, do you want me to say anything? I'm, I mean, I'm just trying to find out what the purpose would be for me to be there other mm-hmm. than just to gather information. And, and so, yes, yeah, so that's, that's always tricky too sometimes where you want to reach out and you, 
and you don't want to make the meeting about yourself yeah. but at the same time if they want you to say something like you really it's really good to know that that you can be there and and, and prepare right and it's good to be able to at least announce yourself enough that people can come up to you and ask you questions or give you feedback and ideas on yes. things yeah and that balance I think is really important and especially you know in this changing political climate um, where outsiders and women and scientists are entering the political arena more and more mm -hmm. uh, navigating that is challenging because so many of those standard meetings and practices I think are sort of being overturned yes and I think in a good way because we're engaging new folks yes Absolutely. That wasn't really a question. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I'm like that's okay. on this rock now. <laughs> <laughs> but so I'm curious if you had like one takeaway um, for the listeners from your campaign, something you've learned that they could benefit from or something that you'd want them to know about you or about your experiences, what would that be? And it can be more than one. You don't have to distill it down all the way. Um, I, I think kind of the, the short answer would be that if there are a lot more people out there that okay let me put it this way that I really think that there's so much in the news that says that we're super divided as a nation and I'm not disagreeing with that I, I do think there there are quite a few divisions but I think there are more people out there who want to come together and see positive change for the country than we are divided. And I see that at the district level, um, and, and I, I talk to a lot of local candidates as well because we all tend to kind of run in the same circle and yeah. see each other. And they're, they're experiencing the same thing too, is that there are, there are people on both sides, Republican, actually any side, Republican, Democrat, independent, libertarian, whatever. And, and there are, uh, there, we're all worried. Now we all might have different ideas for how, what kind of change we want to see to get us back on track. But there are more people I think who want to be able to come together and work with someone uh, just to make sure that America remains um, the player in the world that it really is. And I think that there are a lot of, yeah, we have a lot more in common than um, I think the media and um, even some other politicians would like to let us believe. I like the hopeful note. Yes. Yeah, I tend to be an optimist too. So I, I try to be as well. <laughs> I, I don't, I found I, I don't get very far in life by being negative um, in my, in my outlook or negative with people or or trying to trying to be mean or, or use negative tactics to get what I want. Usually for me, the best way for me to get what I want is to A, work hard at it, mm -hmm. and B, try to use whatever positive assets um, I, can, I can find within myself and with other people. Oh yeah. Because the nicer you are to people, the more likely they're gonna be to help you out. I think that might be the golden rule. Yes. <laughs> that was that was something we said often in my house growing up. I think it was about every day my dad had to remind me. Uh, you know, so I wanted to talk a minute about, because as a fellow scientist, this is something I find myself reflecting on pretty often, is science communication 
and how mm -hmm. science communication and the entire drive within the scientific field to not only you know do good science but also to talk to the public about it mm -hmm. um, how that drive parallels the political world and how politicians themselves as non-traditional folks are coming into the game and people are rethinking their own strategies how they're also having that communication challenge of how do we talk to anyone and everyone about what we're doing even though it's you know maybe up here at the 30,000 foot level where we're using you know this technology or this specific language and jargon um, but we have to be able to be transparent and tell other people about it. Uh, do you see those parallels and have you been involved in science communication in the past? What was that? I don't know. <laughs> that was weird anyway. It's probably a gigantic trash truck of some sort but yeah that was a weird noise. Um, yeah, so one of the challenges is to not, especially when you're trying to um, communicate your point of view and you may only have two minutes, three minutes, is to figure out how to make it accessible in a way for, I mean, even scientists that I talk to, I mean, uh, I have friends who are physicists or uh, astronomers and, you know, they don't have a background in chemistry so me talking and getting in the into the weeds and into the like crazy details of what I do um is is something that um I've always had to work on and especially my husband my husband's uh is has a theater background so uh at some point he's kind enough you know to ask me how my day was and there are some days when I will roll off and talk for 20 minutes about what my day was like and I think about three minutes in he's usually like uh-huh uh-huh and he's paying attention politely but I don't think he wants to hear the rest of what I have to say but um but yeah it's it's all about how do you effectively communicate to the people who need to know this information and you know sometimes like I said you may only have like two or three minutes in order to do that and so figuring out what are the most important points I need to make and what are going to be the most effective terms and words that are going to be understandable and and that brings me to one of the one of the things that has really irritated me about um, this this administration um, is the the ban of anybody in the CDC to use specific words uh, in their reporting now uh, as a scientist and and any most anybody will tell you in the science field that there are guidelines to how you do your research and that's so that you do it ethically, you do it credibly, and consistently. And, and consistently, and and when you go to, um, you know, read off your results, or if someone would ever want to re uh, redo your work or review your work or try to um, emulate it in their own lab, right. that it's going to work. And so it's really important when we write uh, up reports that we know. Um, we can use the words we need to use to be the most effective in communicating what we want to say in our reports so that they make the most sense. And so that's why when um, when it came out, oh, when was that? Back in, what, about this time in 2017 or yeah, so? Yeah, it was almost a year it, ago. Yeah, it was about a year ago. I think that the, the, res the according to my... Uh, um, to my uh, information, there were seven words that 
um, analysts are not allowed to use in their CDC reports. And, and the biggest one, I mean, there's so there's vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, science-based. The evidence-based one was the most ridiculous, in my opinion, because you're, as a scientist, you're creating evidence. You're, you're generating data that's going to say, this is what happened, and here's the evidence to prove it. And so that, that, that to me just was a major attack on science, major attack on facts, and I was just so irritated by that. And um, hopefully we can overturn that decision so that the CDC and other agencies who are probably getting censored as, we're, as we speak right now um, are able to report out what's in the most effective way that they see fit. Well, I just saw a report, I think this was yesterday, that there's some interesting stuff coming out with regard to interpretation of climate change data mm -hmm. that the administration is trying to figure out how they're going to communicate it and interpret it to, to use for their own policy needs or, you know, what have you, when they're communicating, really science communicating with, with everyone in this country. Yes. And, and the stuff that was coming out about it, it's like, well, we want to limit things and we want to, you know, ensure that it's beyond a reasonable doubt and all this kind of stuff and it's like very concerning to see this still happening even yeah. just two days ago yeah. um, and especially because of you know the types of words used around it of like we don't trust this data yeah and that's you know as as someone who's in the science field knows the links that we go to to self-criticize really and to try to make sure that we're being consistent I mean that is just scary yeah. and I'm glad you brought up that because we tend to there's so much going on right now that it's easy to forget easy to say oh that was a year ago you know so many other things have happened but it happened yeah. and we still have to remember that you know we have to do better we have to move forward um, so you know we're coming to the end of the time and I'm just curious you know if there's anything that we didn't say that you were hoping to talk about uh, well just in general um, a little bit more on what the what some of the bigger issues are I mean we did talk about health care we talked about jobs um, I, I, but education is another one of the big topics that I, I usually discuss. Um, I'm a, I like to say I'm a proud graduate of public, uh, of public schools. Same here. <laughs> and um, my mom's, I think, like I said, she's a retired public school teacher. So uh, that runs in my family. I think, you know, if I wasn't for public school, I'd probably be disowned. But I, I'm, I'm all for funding public education when it, um, at, at all levels. So I am for universal pre-K. Um, I think that at three years old, that will certainly help um, socialize our children, um, and it can help with developing the skills earlier that they need in order to be successful in school. Uh, from K to 12 public education, um, I really think we are doing our society a major disservice, not just because we're, we're not fully funding, but when these kids go out into the workforce, are they really going to be ready for the jobs of tomorrow? Um, if they want to go to, are they going to be prepared for college? Are they going to be prepared for the tech school or vocational or community college that they want to go to so that they can act, so that they can have the career and the life that they want? Mm -hmm. um, and and the, one of the issues with saying schools are fully funded is that so many state legislatures that are in charge of funding the schools are reducing the budget of what the schools get. So they're, they're able to say, oh yeah, we're fully funding that. Yes, the budget is $90, $90 million and we're able to uh, fund that $90 million. But 
the budget really needs to be like 150 million dollars mm -hmm. and so there's that huge gap between what's really needed and what's actually getting budgeted um, and and then there is of course the whole dilemma of affordable college education um, so I think my undergraduate loans are paid off but my grad school loans are still Congratulations, by the way, because a lot of people still haven't paid off any of those 20 years in, you know? Yeah, well, I think it took me longer than the 10 years that uh, that was allotted because, mm. you know, when you graduate, at least, at least the way that my loans were set up, it was, uh, it's a 10-year um, period after where they schedule the payments and everything. So you can pay it off earlier if you wanted to, but um, you're still going to pay the same amount. You're not, you're not going to get discounted on any sort of... Um, interest or anything like that but mm -hmm. but yeah so my my grad school loans are still outstanding and ridiculous but um being able to fully fund our public universities our community colleges our vocational and tech um schools that are in the public sector i think that's really going to be very important um because uh a lot of times it's just it's a mon money is the barrier yeah. and and but the other whenever we do start funding those fully, um, if, if I have my way, <clears throat> I want to include um, provisions for transportation and also for childcare at the post high school uh, level because that's one of the, the, the issues that I hear, especially in the rural parts of the, of the district is that, okay, yeah, I, I have a job and I can probably afford to go to community college and get an associate's degree and whatever it is they want to do, but they're a single parent and they can't afford childcare or uh, they share a car with their family and they can't always make it to class. So, and, and as you being living in a rural area or the rural part of the state, I'm sure you know that there's really no public transportation out here. So you are correct. <laughs> yes. So being able to provide those, those two options, I think it's going to be really, really important to, providing accessibility to um, higher education for a lot of the people in this country who may not have it right now. Absolutely. I'm in total agreement. These are these are the issues of our day, you know, and I still have loans out too. Yeah. So I, I feel you there. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me today. Well, this thank you so wonderful. much for having me. I was really, it was really nice to be with you. Yeah, of course. And you know, this has been Blazers and Flag Pens and this is episode nine. I'm so happy to have you all along this journey with me. And we'll be having a review episode in the next couple where we talk about issues within the campaign. And I'll probably talk a little bit more about what it's like to be a scientist uh, on a congressional campaign. Um, but this has been Hallie Thompson and... And this is Katie Guppert running for the 3rd Congressional District in the state of Missouri. And my website, if you'd like to check out more of my details on issues, is Katie Guppert for Congress. That's K-A-T-Y-G-E-P-P-E-R-T forcongress.com. And I also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. So please feel free to follow me on social media. Awesome. Yeah, I always have to spell my name too when I'm given the website because it's spelled a little unusually. Yeah. But anyway, have a wonderful rest of your day, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. This podcast has been paid for by Hallie Thompson for Congress.